Our Bible passage is from Acts 17, 16 to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought, them, brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and, breathe in every, and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Amen. Last Sunday, uh, we initiated our third sermon series of 2021, centering on the theme of endurance inspired by hope. Uh, the current series follows on the heels of messages on work produced by faith and labor prompted by love. Phrases from our church, a key verses in 1 Thessalonians 1. Uh, our hope messages began with uh, 2 Kings 18, right, where the spokesman for the king um, of Assyria, Sennacherib, uh, the spokesman gives a demoralizing speech to the officials and the people of the city of Jerusalem, uh, which uh, Sennacherib was besieging. Uh, the speech was designed to it dishearten the Jerusalemites and the king of Judah, Hezekiah, of any and all platforms or avenues of hope. Uh, by way of review, just uh, it was already mentioned in Ed's prayer and also Josephine's prayer, but those were the ones that were identified. And of course, uh, Hezekiah instead placed his confidence in God and was amply rewarded as Sennacherib was forced to withdraw, lost a major portion of his forces, and end up, ended up being assassinated by two of his own sons. Um, if these avenues of hope, uh, they're listed, it could be understood, let's say, as more experience-based, 
Uh, today, I want to look at uh, our selected contour of hope being as being kind of more knowledge based, uh, knowledge based. So uh, last Sunday, Christian hope was discussed uh, along the lines of the definition, um, a patient expectation that God will ultimately prevail for our good. Right? And this is made possible by God's um, unwavering commitment to us and his uh, trustworthy character. So I said that our hope is not in a particular outcome, or even in necessarily what, you know, God can provide for us. So let's say there's economic prosperity is the hope, you know, that that's unreliable, or the inoculated return to normalcy that we're all, you know, wishing for. Uh, that we can't put our hope in that. The Christian hope is grounded in God, who God is, right? his faithfulness to us. Uh, the ground of hope prevails. This ground of hope prevails over every every other avenue right? because God himself is the hope, uh, and that's what we have to offer the world. So uh, the context uh, of today's biblical story is uh, the second missionary journey of Apostle Paul, uh, which took him to a number of regions, including the uh, philosophical capital uh, of the world at the time, Athens. Uh, Paul had to flee there from the uh, city of Berea after his opponents continued to hound him from Thessalonica. But Paul is not in Athens to merely sightsee or to evade capture. Uh, Paul was there to proclaim the enduring hope that could only be found in God. And due to Paul's fearlessness and sense of mission, he begins to engage Jew and Gentile alike in the city of Athens with the gospel. So uh, let's read verse 23 again to get to my title. Um, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Um, Paul observes that the Athenians were religious enough and intellectually curious enough to uh, dedicate an altar to a God that they had not yet found and did not yet uh, clearly know about. I think it's how, how I feel that people view hope. Yeah, We have this sense, right? we want to have hope. It's a good thing to experience. We want to have it. And, and there's this sense that it's out there. Right? We just have to find it. We have to locate it. We've been looking, but we haven't just uh, found it yet. Uh, so I derived uh, my sermon title from that inscription, right? To an unknown hope. Right? That that's shows, I think, what we are looking for. Right? So I'm going to focus on uh, various approaches that I find in the text that people use to try to discover this unknown hope. Uh, in terms of organization, then, uh, let's consider three different approaches at getting at this unknown hope. Uh, I have rendered them as follows. Um, first, uh, reason. Okay, reason. And here, I'm not talking about a specific, particular, small reason. I'm talking about reason in general, rationality, our ability to think and process and logically uh, extend things. Right? Found, I think, uh, kind of covering the whole like first eight verses. And then uh, what I'm calling the future. Our people kind of view hope or approach hope as it's not yet here. And, and, and as long as we go after it, as long as we keep going, we'll eventually find it. There is this kind of strange confidence we have in the future. And, and I'm going to, from, from the, those four verses there, yeah, I'm going to try to explain that. And then revelation, right? Divine revelation. That's Paul's approach, right? To try to explain this unknown hope. Uh, he, what has God revealed 
but to offend. These are big, kind of scary topics, right? Theologically speaking, from an explanatory point of view. Uh, but let's try to look at each of them uh, in turn. So number one, reason. Uh, human beings uh, are endowed with rationality and with the ability to reason. Uh, some argue that it's actually the greatest faculty we possess. Some even suggest that rationality is what being made in the image of God refers to. That's the image rationality, right? Uh, you know, many people, including us, play high, place high hopes in human reason. You know, the so-called uh, age of enlightenment, right? Late 17th century to early 19th century, for example. It elevated reason uh, above many other types of authorities, such as tradition or religion. This confidence in human thought has impacted the world in untold ways, especially in political, uh, philosophical, and scientific discourses, and of course impacted religion as well. And, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll grant that maybe it did experience a major revival in the 18th century, but I think many trace the heyday of human rationality to the very geographical region that Paul found himself in our narrative. Classical philosophy, as it's called, had its birth and ascendancy in the fifth and sixth centuries BC amongst the Greek philosophers. Although, you know, it kind of was not as widespread until later. But I want to submit that throughout human history, we've readily put our hope, always put our hope in ourselves, in our ability to think, plan, devise, solve, and achieve, right? putting to use these great minds, these brains of, of ours. Even all the way back in the Garden of Eden, I view Eve's struggle with what the serpent said about God to be an exercise in her intellectual reasoning. The serpent asks, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Yeah. The temptation was actually uh, a planting of a seed of doubt in Eve's mind. He goes on to say, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you hear how knowledge and, and knowing is intrinsic to why Adam and Eve took the plunge in favor of their own reason over uh, God's command? Yeah, of course, since then, we've always put our hope in our mental abilities whether exclusively or not. Um, in our first century story from Acts 17, the power of reason is alive and well. Verse 21 tells us that all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. This was their main activity, trying to reason things out, trying to depend on reason, trying to talk about reason. Paul himself engaged in reasoning, according to verse 17 and 18, in both the synagogue as well as the marketplace. And this led to a dispute with a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, while Paul employed reasoning, we'll see later that he is not depending solely upon it. He's not approaching his, the hope question through human reason alone. But it seems like uh, many of the Athenians did. They banked on their uh, ratiocination. They were confident enough to debate 
and consider the idea, great ideas of the time. Via reason, they thought they could discern whether certain ideas or theories were worthy of their belief or action. Now, of course, we all do the same. I'm using reason to present you know, my points here that I'm trying to teach. And you're using reason to uh, ascertain if what I'm saying makes sense or not. But it seems more predominant or prominent um, for the Athenians that reason was king. Uh, even though they considered Paul's advocacy to be concerning foreign gods, you know, they, they hold reason to a high standard, and so they invite him to a formal meeting of the Areopagus, or, or Mars Hill. You, you might have heard that alternate name. Um, it's actually a prominent like rock outcropping, a rock cropping um, near the famous Acropolis in Athens. So Mona and I got to see it uh, in the flesh uh, in 2019. Um, apparently, in classical times, the Areopagus was the location of a court of law that tried cases of homicide, injury, <laughs> arson of olive trees, because that was the main product, and religious matters. So it was a very fitting place for Paul's ideas to be tried uh, in a couple senses of the word. So they listen to his presentation, uh, but when Paul gets to the resurrection, you know, verse 32 says that some sneered. You know. They followed what he was saying. Maybe they nodded. Maybe they, they agreed until they didn't. Right? When he said something that offended their plausibility structure, they closed their minds uh, to him. Now, their reasoning would not let them take seri him seriously anymore. Uh, likely, it was an a priori bias against the resurrection uh, from the dead. Yeah. Since to them it was rationally impossible, they dismissed it out of hand. That's the, uh, the double-edged you know, sword nature of reason to me. Right? It's a powerful tool. The trouble is we're the ones that wield that tool. We bring along our biases and presuppositions and opinions. Applied reason is not purely neutral. And therefore, to me, it cannot serve as a basis for hope. If we ultimately place our hope in our ability to reason, to reason everything out, to work things out mentally, to, we'll be sorely disappointed. And reason will fail us because is being applied by morally flawed beings like you and me. Right? Indeed, the theologians will say that reason itself fell along with the fall of mankind back in Genesis 3. Now, there's ample support for this, I think. Uh, reason for all of its benefits and accomplishments has not brought about a utopia. To the contrary, uh, it's been suggested that reason got it of morality has produced some of history's greatest atrocities. British philosopher Bertrand Russell believed that some of Jean-Jacques Rousseau's writings were responsible for the rise of Hitler. Historians have traced societal ills to Leibniz, Descartes, Hobbes, Nietzsche, of course, all who had prodigious reasoning abilities. I started a new book recently called uh, The Dream of Reason, The Dream of Reason by Anthony Gottlieb. Uh, which chronicles uh, the history of Western philosophy. And I anticipate that he will use the word dream um, from his title to mean, um, of course, an aspiration or pursuit, the dream of reason. What, 
the passion of the Western mind kind of thing. But also dream in the sense of that it's an occasion for nightmares. Yeah, reason can result in both. Yeah. So sprinkled in the noble pursuit of knowledge and truth that reason helps us with, there's often a pride that attaches with the accumulation of knowledge. As Sir Francis Bacon put it, knowledge is power. The more people hear and learn, the more pride usually forms. These philosophers, although they looked on the surface as open-minded, giving Paul an audience, they tended towards skepticism. And they're actually calcified in, the, in what they were willing to accept or reject. Yeah. So the conclusion is that don't idolize reason. Yeah. The smartest people in the world are not the best people. They're not the closest to God, even those that have a God complex. Right? Rationality isn't everything. Yeah. Another book that um, I've been recently perusing is titled uh, The Body Keeps the Score. And uh, it kind of says that, uh, it says the opposite. Rationality isn't everything. It's actually, um, <laughs> our rationality can be overpowered um, and even over. Uh, it's written by a Harvard psychiatrist, uh, Bessel van der Kolk. And among the many uh, insightful but frankly disturbing things he talks about uh, in the uh, clinical diagnoses and treatment of trauma, I found his uh, neuroscience explanations uh, most helpful. So he talks about our rational brain and our emotional brain, uh, as he puts it. When we're traumatized, um, our rational slash cognitive brain, so the medial prefrontal cortex, yeah, this is where executive functions occur, it becomes uh, unable or hampered from regulating the emotional brain, the amygdala and the limbic system. Uh, that's where our flight, fright, now freeze uh, impulses reside. So when PTSD breaks down this partnership between the rational and emotional brains, we go into and remain in crisis mode. So when we feel that our survival is at stake or we're seized by rages, longings, fear, or sexual desires, we stop listening to our own voice of reason. Reason fails us. And we can get triggered by something very minor. It causes us to get enraged with someone we love, frightened by something we depend upon, lust after someone who's off limits. Uh, he called it like a tug of war uh, in our brain, leading to physical discomfort and uh, psychological misery. I thought that was, you know, a good explanation of sometimes what I feel, maybe others, I feel what you observed. Even a connection, I think, this idea that you know, what's going on in our brain and our bodies uh, are, are related. So the particular philosophers that Paul debated, you know, the Epicureans believed that pleasure was the greatest good, but the way to attain such pleasure is to live modestly and gain knowledge of the workings of the world and the limits of one's desire. So what they were seeking was a sense of tranquility yeah, and freedom from fear, as well as an absence of bodily pain. The Stoics taught that destructive emotions resulted from errors in judgment. So a sage, right, that, that was their ideal, a person of moral and intellectual perfection um, would not suffer such emotions. A sage should be immune to misfortune, to possess a kind of stoic calm right, evident in their behavior. See, I, I don't know, I, to me, there's an overlap between these rational and emotional brains, if that's what they are, um, and some of the philosophies that um, 
were present even that far long ago. Now, ministerially, as a pastor, I've been personally coming to grips with the reality that um, reasoning things out doesn't always lead to success, right? especially in the areas of relational conflict. I used to think that conflict, for the most part, could always be talked out. It could be reasoned through conversation, uh, cool heads, clarity. You know, those things um, could solve or resolve almost anything interpersonally. But maybe, you know, I don't, or maybe we don't have the brain power to do this, or our emotional brains can't be persuaded, or, you know, we need prayer and, and the Holy Spirit most of all, right? Those can all be true. Or as I've been saying, um, we can't put our ultimate hope, our final hope in reason uh, alone. Okay, hoping that I didn't overdo it with point one. Let's take a look at the second approach at searching for this unknown hope. I called it the future, right? the future approach, but I would include in, in, in it the sense of hope that seems to always reside in us with respect to something new, right? So something beyond us in the future, something new, something undiscovered, something nouveau, right? That it's gonna solve all of our problems. Yeah. We don't know it now, but we will someday. Yeah. There are many glosses to this that we can put on, like progress is always on our horizon. Progress is our destiny. This too will pass. I mean, I know people say it in, in a, in a well-meaning way, but is that necessarily true? Right? Has that been something that we found uh, real in our experience? And I think this is why um, I think somewhat irrationally, or at least without evidence, you know, when we come to a new year, or you know, if you're a student, a new semester, you usually start it with this kind of irrepressible hope. You might not be giddy, you might not be like super excited, but you know, it's, there's always tomorrow, <laughs> we say. Uh, things are gonna be different, things are gonna be better. You know, for a lot of people, 2021 was supposed to be better, uh, I think because 2020 was so horrible. But our optimism isn't always based on facts or reality, strong facts at least. We are a species that constantly looks forward to a new day, a better world. It's a vague notion, but it's a resilient one. Uh, I'm always hoping that things will work out. So I'm gonna call it an existential hopefulness. And I'll try not to get too bogged down, uh, in, but in this area, I find that theologian uh, Wolfhart Pannenberg his views on what he calls our openness, human openness uh, to the world. I find that helpful. Uh, he argues that all other animal species are limited by heredity and environment. Hence, their specialized organs to survive. In contrast, humans are not bound by inherited limits to a particular environment for their experience and behavior. Uh, instead, humans are open to the world. Correspondingly, our organs are not highly specialized relative to the animals. Our organs are versatile, they're adaptable. You know, instincts and drives that control behavior are initially largely undeveloped as well. We possess a wide open view of reality and our potential for new experiences and possible responses are almost limitless, it can vary. 
So only human beings can uh, experience objects as independent entities capable of evoking you know, myriad responses. So we're completely directed into the open. Even beyond, uh, further, beyond every experience, every situation, every object in the world. So this is Pannenberg's way of getting us open to the infinite, right, to God. This is his line of, 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 of uh, explanation. But I don't want to get too far afield. I want to keep it to our subtopic and focus this on this openness to the future. As we experience the world, we experience ourselves, and we become a question to ourselves. We're seeking a human destiny. We always are saying, like, where are we headed? Where is this going? But we want to kind of orient ourselves um, to the future, right? And we know that the answer is not completely found in the existing finite objects and relationship of the world. And so we seek a ground beyond the now, beyond the known. And we possess this ability to imagine and look forward beyond our present situation. The change, the change is something that we can not only think about and possibly experience, but also hope for. We can imagine uh, a different reality. We can plan and prepare for it. We can take stock of our current situation and find that we're either content or discontent. We can look to the future as bringing about some different circumstance or possibility. Yeah, this could be a really good thing because then we're not stuck to a sense of determination, determinism uh, and hopelessness. Right? We can fuel our desire for uh, change with plans and activities and orientations and we'll bring about the change that we desire and that's why hopelessness is so devastating right because we if we feel like we can't ever get out of what we have now we, we don't want to we, we don't want to you know the, the will to live is is affected it's this openness to the future to the beyond to the new to tomorrow Okay, back quickly back to our Acts passage. You know, finding this unknown God was uh, to me an expression of a hope in the future. One day we will know this God. We're going to keep listening and talking, and eventually we're going to get to know His name. That God might be even amongst us now. Let's hear what this Jewish babbler has to say. Perhaps he can move us a little closer. Let's hear the newest ideas. Let's jump on the trend bandwagon, out with the old, in with the new. There's a certain appeal in this, uh, I think, you know, this kind of forward-thinking mentality. But the trouble is, to me, that there's no guarantee that our solutions are really out there. Yes, we may learn more and more. You know, science has always been advancing, hurtling forward. But are we really progressing? Is this a better world than it was 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 2,000 years ago? And I think the jury is still out. And I would even question the premise. Um, does, has the history and, and the future really brought about um, new things and new ideas? Yeah, I mean, certainly it's different, but is it original? Is it uh, really new? 3,000 years ago, Solomon complained that there is nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. It's all been said and uh, re-said. You know, we just uh, repackage it. 
Uh, um, when a recent uh, NYU uh, CK uh, Zoom gathering, I forgot how we got to this topic, but uh, it's like Janelle was talking about something that she read or, or came across about uh, someone was arguing that since the Renaissance, there's been nothing original that has come out of you know human thinking and creativity. Right? So like let's say in the fashion world, everything is retro. There's nothing new or original. Um, you know, you look at movies, for example. I'm just, I, I can't handle remakes, especially if the original was really good, right? But it seems like you hear of this, then I, I think people get excited, and I, I don't know why. It just seems like, why would I want to watch something I've already watched kind, kind of thing, you know, in, in a different whatever approach. You know, um, so, you know, she actually, uh, Janelle actually pointed me to a Mark Twain quote, right? Uh, Mark Twain had this idea, there's no such thing as a new idea. It is impossible. We simply take a lot of old ideas and put them into sort of a mental kaleidoscope. We give them a turn and they make new and curious combinations. We keep on turning and making new combinations indefinitely, but they are the same old pieces of colored glass that we have been, that have been in use through all the ages. You know, typical Twain. Apparently, he said it even differently in 1903 in a letter to Helen Keller, who was accused of like plagiarism. And he said, the essence of all human utterances is plagiarism. Everything is secondhand. There's no true originality. Yeah. Just think about your own, my own development and growth. We certainly learn more as we've grown older, but have I really changed or bettered myself as a person? As believers, you know, we believe that uh, we should be sanctified or transformed into Christ-likeness more and more. But let's say, you know, Christ wasn't there. Am I better off than I was five years ago or 20 years ago? And I think while we can generally view the future with positive expectations, there's a lot of, uh, of uh, things to, to think that, um, you know, our hopes, they've been so disappointing They've, our hopes have been dashed. But we can't really, you know, let go of it, it seems. It's just a strange uh, conundrum that we go through. Yeah. So while openness and the future does keep us motivated and expectant, I'm saying that we cannot, it cannot be the ground of our hope. At best, it just keeps us looking for a vague notion of more, of better. At worst, it's just wishful. Okay, let's finish with our third approach, which I leveled revelation. Uh, and as a pastor, this is probably the most full, the fullest and the most complicated topic, but um, I'm going to try to keep it contained. Uh, because human reason is fallen and our openness to the future is unreliable, uh, we need to find hope elsewhere. And so Paul knows this as he, you know, walks around in Athens, and he's going to spiritually capitalize on it. And so he incorporates uh, divine revelation, uh, the idea of divine revelation as the solution to humanity's quandary. Uh, in my estimation, Paul starts out uh, in the story a little bit kind of hopeless, right? He's being chased like a fugitive. It says he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols, verse 16. Now, Paul can sense that the Athenians are religious, but they do not possess faith. Um, not faith in Christ, certainly, right? But this, you know, religiosity gives them a vain set of hope that they're going to find the answer. 
But in the end, they're going to be outside of God's salvation in Christ. So Paul makes this effort to convey where true hope lies. And so in the speech um, at the Areopagus, Paul makes a masterful cultural connection. Yeah, yeah. He, he quotes two uh, Greek right, sources as support for his point that the creator God does not need temples or service from, from human beings. The first allusion, um, in him we move and live and have our being, uh, is thought to have come from Epimedius, the Cretan, a poet also cited in uh, Titus 1, 2, 12. Uh, the original intent, I think, was more pantheistic, but you know, Paul spins the line into a statement about God as a source of our life. And the second citation, we are his offspring, is from Aratus, a Cilician uh, poet. Right? So the whole, Paul's able to kind of you know, refer to um, different sources right? and, and point to the Athenians' own mindset, this altar to an unknown God. He senses their hopelessness and their hopefulness, right? They're hopeful that someone or some being will answer their question and their openness to the future and new ideas. But he also knows that their hopelessness is built in because despite the diligence, this unknowingness will persist. And so at this juncture, at this saddle point, Paul shines a spotlight on the gospel, you know, where human philosophies and reasonings, right, despite their persuasive power and, and attraction, are a dead end, ultimately a dead end. And so Paul begins to preach about how, via revelation, God has bridged the chasm between reasonable hope, uh, sorry, between reason slash false hope and true hope in Christ, right? Our hopes to be grounded, it needs to be grounded outside of our human effort and capacity. We need hope to be bestowed on us. Um, and it has to be a real hope, an enduring hope, right? That's what Paul proclaims uh, in his message right, to the Areopagus. God is the hope. The agency of God brings true hope uh, to us. God put the world into motion through design and creation, establishing human life, civilization, maybe even using uh, existentialism as an invitation uh, that people will seek truth and meaning in the first place. Right? The quest for hope, uh, in other words, is one of the means that God uses to draw people to himself. Paul points out that even God, even though God is here, near, uh, this hopeful slash hopelessness whets our appetite. Right? God uses the evidence of God wanting to be found and examples of him actually being found to convince his listeners that hopeful that hope rightfully belongs uh, to God in God. The openness to the future and a better experience and a better world is actually a yearning for a relationship with God. Right? Remember Pannenberg, you know that openness. Uh, and it's not in what God can do, what God can provide. It's in a relationship with God. Right? That's greater than our uh, desire for security or satisfactory uh, philosophy. So uh, God has not only set things in motion and he sustained them, God has acted decisively. He's provided a way for us to experience the hope uh, personally, concretely. Right? Not only are we God's offspring, but 
the communication is no longer through ignorant idolatry. It's through a person. God selected a human being, his own son, Jesus Christ, as the eternal gatekeeper, as the hope giver, as walking hope. Jesus is the only way. He's the only gate to that. Failure to recognize Jesus' special role would forever leave us outside of God's grace. And there's going to come a time. We don't have an, 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 an infinite future. A day has been appointed where judgment, where justice uh, will be decided. Right? And that's why uh, Paul has to get to the resurrection. Right? Because death is the ultimate hope killer. Right? So unless God deals with death, right, all of our hopes are, are fruitless. Right? And so death, which is the end of openness, is uh, addressed right, by uh, the resurrection. No matter how much hope we have while we're alive, death is the ultimate nightmare. And that's why Jesus had to conquer death. And so that's why Paul kind of gets to this conclusion. And of course, it offends the sensibilities of a number of Athenians. Right? Because to them, reason doesn't allow them to accept a revelation that ends in resurrection. Their openness to the future, this belief that we've always been and we always will be, right, doesn't allow for an end to time, an end to opportunity, an end to uh, the seeking. Right? And uh, so a lot of them reject revelation, from Paul, as Paul explains it. But there are a few that do, and a few that accept. Dionysius, Demaris, we don't know much about them, but to them, they see this approach as hope-giving, as maybe hope itself. That what God has demonstrated, what God has backed up, what God will see to its consummation, to its conclusion, right? they find that this is where hope can uh, live forever right? in God. So, uh, let's go to God now in prayer as um, the, the sermon's concluded. Um, I, I hope that uh, it, it has not been too bogged down with concepts or um, explanations, but, you know, revelation, God's revelation is greater than our reason. God's revelation is greater than our future. Right? The unknown hope can be personally known. It can come to us today. So let's um, come before in prayer the God of hope, the God who is hope.